Good morning, family. My name is Bantun, and I'm also part of the tribe ministry, the young adults um, ministry here at church. And today I will be reading the Bible, Luke 10, verse 25 until 37. Luke 10, 25 until 37. And behold, a lawyer stood. Okay, sorry. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will leave. But he desiring his, to justify himself, saying to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and where he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to, to where, sorry, came to where he, he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor he th to the man who fell among the robbers he said the one who showed him mercy and Jesus said to him you go and do likewise. This is the word of God. Thank you to Bantu. That was great reading. Uh, thank you to Nangi. Man, that was awesome. And thank you to Shoki, who read for us a bit earlier as well. Uh, those three ladies are part of the tribe, uh, which meets on Wednesdays at 6.30. So if you're young adults in our church, uh, that if you have just started university uh, up to your late 30s, would you please just consider joining that young adults ministry, Black, who's at the very front. I'll ask him to come to the front at the end. We'll be here to chat to you if you'd like to do that. Uh, this morning we're beginning a new series, um, series titled The Upside Down Kingdom. There should be something right behind me uh, to say that. Uh, let me introduce myself actually first. My name is Reggie, and I'm one of the ministers here. Now, Royden last week mentioned that there will be new voices and new faces up front. Uh, I think what he wanted to say is uh, there'll be more handsome-looking faces up front. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're beginning a new series this morning titled The Upside Down Kingdom. And our very first sermon will be from the passage that was read for us, the parable of the Good Samaritan. How about I pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we do pray that this morning you would show us that we are those who are in desperate need of your goodness. We are those who need to be shown your mercy, your pity, and your compassion. And Lord, as those who have now received that, would you help us to show that very same compassion towards others? Would you help us to realize that Christian identity is received, not achieved? And when it, when it is received, it ought to be lived out. Pray that you'd help us, that you speak to us through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. Amen. It has been said, if there's one thing that humanity cannot live without, it is a sense of identity. See, we all, whether we are you're a Christian this morning or not, we all long to be or to belong to something that gives us a sense of worth, that gives us a sense of value, and that gives us a reason to live. And see, what we have to realize this morning is that whatever it is that we make our identity actually informs where we find our confidence, our certainty, and our assurance. And so we, here we are this morning. Let me ask you, who are you? What is your identity? What is at the core of your identity? And does it always give you the certainty that you want? Again, whether you want to admit it or not, we all desire a sense of identity. And we hope that that identity will not be sinking sand. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, or consider yourself to be part of our redeemed family, let me ask you another question. And this is it. What is your identity? What does it mean for you to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church, or part of this church? What does it mean to you? Now, however you choose to answer this question, I do hope that in answering it, you would include something of what we consider to be our identity or DNA here at Christ Church Midrand. Now, I'm sure that you guys could probably recite this DNA because you probably recite this DNA in your dreams. And I'm certain that some of you actually even dream about it because that's how much you love our church. And so I'm going to ask you that we should say this together. Here at the church, at Christ Church Midrand, we consider ourselves to be a redeemed family of servants on mission. This is who we are. This is our identity. And so if you're new to the church this morning, or you're new to Christianity, 
this is who we are. Now, I imagine that some of these words are probably new or odd or unfamiliar to you. So, so let me explain what they mean. When we say we are redeemed, we mean that God has saved us. He has saved us when we could not save ourselves. And he has saved us from what we could not save ourselves. And when we say we are family, we mean that God has gathered us into his people. He has adopted us into his family. He has made us, as we sang earlier, sons and daughters. We are siblings. And these siblings, in the next word, are servants who care and love, who care and show love towards each other. And lastly, we are those who are on mission. Because we have been shown such great love and goodness by God, we are compelled to show that very same goodness towards others. We want to love and care. We want to show love and care towards all people. And so in essence, what these four pillars of our DNA tell you is that we are people that have first been shown goodness. And because we have been shown goodness, we are compelled to show goodness to all people. Now, if I was to remove any of those pillars, if any of us was to remove any of these pillars, then we would cease to be a Christian or the church as the Bible truly identifies us. See, what, see, what we would become is an unstable Christian, just like those three wheel cars from back in the day. Don't know if you remember them, especially the ones with the wheel up front. See, those cars always looked like they were about to turn over whenever they turned a corner. And so it is with the Christian who removes one of these pillars from their identity. See, our identity as the people of God is that we have been shown goodness and so are compelled to show goodness towards others as well. Now I'm convinced that you have realized that our identity implies or presupposes that we are those who have first shown this goodness. We are shown pity, mercy, and compassion by God. And this is precisely what Jesus wants the lawyer whom he has a conversation with today to realize. See, as he stands and has a conversation with this lawyer, he tells him an ordinary story, a parable, which is what every teacher would have done. They would have told a story. But Jesus tells this story for the purpose of bulldozing the identity that this man has built for himself. See, this man has built an identity for himself outside of what God has said. And Jesus in this story is about to bulldoze that. And he's also about to show him what life in the kingdom looks like. And this is what life in the kingdom looks like. In the kingdom, identity is received rather than achieved. And when we have received this identity... We live it out. Let me say it again. Identity is received rather than achieved. And when we have received this identity, we live it out. And so in our passage, as we go to it now, keep those very things in mind as we go to this conversation that goes back and forth between Jesus and the lawyer. And actually, as we turn to the passage, you will realize that Luke gives us the structure of the passage. 
There are two parts to our passage. There's verse 20, 25 to verse 28, and then verse 29 to verse 38. There are two scenes in, in, in one sense to the passage that we have today. And the very first scene begins with a question that the men ask. What should I do? And Jesus tells them what to do. He says, do this. And if you notice, the second scene begins in a very similar way with a question. The man says, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story, and then thereafter tells him, you should do this. And so for our time today, we will look at those two scenes. And then thereafter, I will end with some concluding words for us to think about. Words of application uh, for the coming week for us to think about. So let's go to the very first scene, and we'll read verse 25 to verse 28. The very first scene is verse 25 to verse 28. Let me read it for us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. See, our very first scene begins with a lawyer that seems to be eavesdropping on a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples while he is teaching in public. See, when you read from verse 24 onwards, you see that there isn't any sort of transition. It seems like Jesus is in public and is teaching. And as he often does, he teaches and then he, takes, he spends some time speaking to his disciples, focusing on them. And this man finds himself in this crowd that has come to listen to what Jesus has come to teach. But here's the thing about this man. He's in the crowd for the purpose of testing Jesus. He's in the crowd for the purpose of tricking Jesus. And this is what Luke wants us to see. See, the very first thing he does is stand up, which is a sign of respect at this time when you address the teacher. But Luke wants us to see the insidious nature of his question. See, this man wants to test Jesus. He wants to trip, trap him. He wants to trick him. He wants to humiliate him in public. And he wants to do that because he's quite confident in challenging Jesus because he is a lawyer. He is a lawyer not in the sense of Beriru, Dalimpofu, Pumlani Ngongo as part of our church, or Harvey Specter. No, he's a lawyer in the sense that he's one who studied the Jewish law and he's an expert in the Jewish law. And so he's a top Bible scholar, but he's also a legal representative. Because you see, Jewish civil law came from the Torah. So he's both a lawyer in that sense, but he's also a top Bible scholar. And so you can imagine him as he stands before, before Jesus, he's confident. With this mischievous grin in his mouth, or well in his face, as he's about to ask this very question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think you and I often misunderstand what this man is asking Jesus because we understand what that very, we misunderstand rather what that phrase eternal life means. We read that phrase through our modern day eyes. We consider eternal life to be something or some, a life that comes, a forever life that comes after we die. 
Often this is how some Christians think of eternal life. But this is not how the Bible actually defines eternal life. See, the Bible does not think of eternal life as simply being a quantity of time. But eternal life is a quality of life. It is the kind of life that God has come to bring in Jesus. And it is actually the kind of life that God has promised from the very beginning of time. A life that you can actually find in the Torah. And the man actually says so clearly what life in the kingdom, what life in the Messiah's age looks like. And so the question that he asks, another translation puts it this way, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age, the age of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Messiah? This is the question he's asking, what should I do to get that life? See, he assumes that there's something he can do to get that life. He assumes he can obtain this life through his own efforts. And you see, it is worthwhile for us to realize that he's not actually the first person to ask Jesus this question in Luke. He's actually the first, but there's another one a bit later that asks a very similar question of Jesus. And this is the rich young ruler who stands before Jesus and asks the very same question, albeit with different motives. And so we see here that this might have been a conversation, a topic, that was trending at this time. And one of the things we ought to realize is that the lawyers themselves would have thought about where the answer for that comes from. And so as they stand before Jesus, they're trying to test Jesus' faithfulness to the law. But they want to test his faithfulness to the law according to the way that they understand the law. Does Jesus match up to them as a teacher? So this man is trying to figure out, can I obtain eternal life through my own efforts? Now, the way that Jesus answers this man's question tells us two things. One, he's a good Bible teacher and a good student of the word. In Luke 2, we are told of Jesus as a young man studying the word of God. In Luke 4, we are told of him being tempted by Satan. And you know what he uses? The word of God. He appeals to the word of God as his authority. And so here, he does the very same thing with this man. He asks him, what does the word say about where you can get eternal life? And Jesus is asking this because he's aware too that the man has an overestimated view of himself. He has an overestimated view of himself, which is why he thinks there's something that he can do to obtain eternal life. See, this man does not understand what life in the Messiah's kingdom looks like. He does not understand who gets to inherit such a life and who gets to be saved. And so Jesus here needs to dismantle whatever identity he has built for him to realize that identity in the kingdom is not obtained or achieved. It is received. It is given by the Messiah himself. So notice what Jesus says to the man in verse 26, as I've just mentioned. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In essence, Jesus is saying to the man, you are Israel's teacher. You are an expert in the law. You have spent some time studying God's word. So you tell me what the law says. You tell me what God's word says. Now remember what I said earlier. Jesus here wants to point the lawyer to God's word to show him that he has an overestimated view, an inflated view of himself. 
And so Jesus wants to give him a more accurate view of who he is. So this man needs to realize, he needs to get to a point where he realizes that there's nothing he has done to inherit life in the kingdom. And he might have thought that he deserves it because he's a Jew and because he has studied the law. He might have thought that he deserves this life in the kingdom. And so Jesus needs to help him through this. But you see, he realizes what Jesus has done. So he tries to wriggle himself out of this very situation by asking Jesus, who can I love or show generosity as my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, that very question there is him saying, how can I limit whom I can be loving towards? How can I limit whom I can be generous towards? That that's what he's asking in that very question. Because in Leviticus 19, they were told to love the people of God. But that very passage also speaks about loving strangers. And so this man is thinking about who can I love? Should I love just the people of God? And actually within the people of God, should I love only those whom I feel deserve to be loved by me? And so you notice how he is figuring out a way to exclude others from this. And so Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan to make him realize that the reason why he is not willing to show great generosity towards others is because he has not understood how God has been generous towards him. See, the reason why he doesn't want to be neighborly towards us, towards others, is because he does not realize how God has acted neighborly towards him. And so Jesus tells this story and so when we hear this story, we should not think Jesus is trying to motivate him to do a good thing. He's not trying to motivate him to be a good person. Jesus is trying to offend him and to dismantle the idols that he has built in his life. Jesus wants to dismantle this identity he has built for himself. And so as we move on to our second scene, we will see exactly that as Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. In verse 29, this man, as we see, has asked, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus responds, second scene, by telling him the story of the Good Samaritan. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus introduces him to the main character of his story. And the main character of his story is a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this man is met by misfortune. He's robbed, he's stripped, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. Now notice what Jesus does not tell us about the man. He does not tell us whether the man is a Jew or a Gentile. And he does that purposefully. And so as he tells the story of this man who would have met such misfortune, those in the crowd would have, would have understood why Jesus tells this story, would have understood what has happened to this man, because they have known that that was a dangerous road. And so note again that Jesus tells this story to dismantle the man's character, his identity rather. And he does this by first introducing him to this character, a man who has just met his misfortune. Jesus thereafter introduces two other characters in his story. And the two other characters are a priest and a Levite. A Levite is someone who would have been an associate or an assistant to the priest in the temple. And now we're told about these men, the holy men who work in the temple, that as they walked down from Jerusalem towards Jericho, they came 
verse 31 to verse 32. They came, they saw the men, and no, they did not conquer. They passed on the other side and did not help him. They did not help the man who found himself in such misfortune. And again, the people in the crowd would have understood that. They would have understood why the priests acted in this way. See, lots of people have tried to figure out and study this very phenomenon. Why do the priests act in this way? And a number of reasons have been given. One of them is for security reasons. The priests are aware that this man has been robbed. And so they don't want to face the same misfortune. So they move to the other side. The other reasons that are given are to maintain ritual purity. The priests would have been trying to make sure that they're not contaminated by the man's dead body, especially if they find out that he is dead. And so they walk away from him. But the third reason says that the second one is actually not correct. Because notice that the priests have actually come from Jerusalem. So they've spent some time serving in the temple. So as they're going back home, being worried about ritual purity would not be a big thing. And actually, priests at this time, if they saw a neglected corpse, they were obligated to bury that corpse. And so the reason why the priest and the Levite does not help the man is because they didn't want to. They didn't think he was deserving of their generosity, which fits in well with the context that we see in this passage, which is what Jesus is showing the lawyer. He does not act neighborly towards those around him because he does not realize first how God has acted neighborly towards them, towards him. And in showing him how Jesus, how God rather has acted neighborly towards him, Jesus introduces a third character to the story. He talks about a Samaritan. And you can imagine already murmurs when Jesus mentions a Samaritan at this very moment because the Jews actually hated the Samaritans. They saw them as half-Jews, heretics, and enemies. And so there would have been murmurs as soon as Jesus mentioned the Samaritan, especially when he made the Samaritan the hero of the story. But notice what Jesus tells us about the Samaritan. Jesus tells us that this hated character is actually the hero of the story. He came, he saw the man, he was moved with compassion. And he went to the wounded man and excessively cared for him. The phrase that you see there in verse 33, he had compassion on him. It's actually used of two other people in Luke's gospel. In Luke 7, it is used of Jesus. In Luke 15, it is used of a father figure that is meant to point to God. And so here Jesus uses this story to point to the Samaritan, showing compassion to this man. He's moved within his guts or under his guts to show compassion towards the man who is wounded. He shows him compassion by acting beyond what any of us would expect him to do. He does something that is beyond his personal, he does something that would be to his personal cost. He uses his own wine and oil that he would have used for his own medical attention and that of his animal. And he actually takes the man afterwards and puts him on his animal. And remember, he's walking downhill. And if you've ridden a bicycle downhill or ran downhill, you would know how much difficult that is. But this man is so determined to help this wounded man that he does that. And when he gets to the inn, he pays two days of wages for him. 
and promises to return, to pay more if the men have stayed longer. And what also we also see is that the, Samar- the Samaritan actually isn't worried about his own security as he helps the man. At the, very, at the very end of it all, Jesus then turns to the lawyer and says to him, who has acted neighborly towards the wounded man? Now notice what happens in the story. The Samaritan cannot, uh, that the lawyer cannot actually bring himself to saying, the Samaritan, that's how much they hated them. And that's how much he loves his own idol, that he has built this whole, his, his whole idea that obtaining life in the kingdom is based on, is based on merit. It's based on his Jewish heritage and the fact that he is a lawyer. But Jesus here actually wants to show him that the only way he can begin to act neighborly is by realizing how God has acted neighborly towards him in being, this great, in being the good Samaritan towards him. And so as we finish the end of the story, what we ought to see, what we ought to learn from this parable are two things, two things that I've already pointed out in our sermon already. And these are the two things we ought to learn that Jesus actually illustrates in the story of Luke and uh, in the story of Martha and Mary that comes straight after this very passage. These are the two things we ought to learn from the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This story is not teaching us about being good people. This story isn't saying, hey, look at what the Good Samaritan has done. Now walk out, go and do that. Rather, what this story is, t- is telling us is, you and I are actually the Levite and the priest. You and I are the one who are wounded and who, needs, who need God to show them great mercy. So that's the first thing we ought to learn from this story. This story shows us that we are the ones who need to be shown goodness. We are the ones whom the good Samaritan needs to act in goodness towards. Now let me, let me be honest to you, with you this morning. Whenever I've read this story, and even as I've prepared for it, for it in this coming week, whenever I've read it, I'm always inclined to think of myself or to identify myself with the Good Samaritan. And this is because I actually think of myself as the hero in my own story. I think of myself as being good enough or as having efforts that are good enough to stand before God. And so like this lawyer, although I may say I believe Christian identity is achieved rather than, is received rather, rather than achieved. I don't actually live like that. See, too many times I find myself, I find myself building my identity based on my works and my efforts. And so when I've had a good week, and so when I've been good, I'll often come before God with this attitude. God, look at me. Look at how good I've been. Aren't you impressed with me? Aren't you impressed with me? Look at how good I've been. And so unintentionally, I take this message, the message of this story to being, Reggie, don't be like the priest or the Levite who's too concerned about himself. Be like the good Samaritan. Be a good person. You can do it. Yes, you can. Through your own efforts. Yes, you can. I often think of myself in that way. But you see, look, and Jesus would not have me do that. See, if there's any character that I'm not meant to identify with, 
It is the good Samaritan. See, I am meant to identify with the priest and Levite and the man who is wounded. See, I'm like the priest and Levite because I do not always perfectly love those whom I consider to be my friends, much less those whom I consider to be strangers and enemies. And I'm actually the one who's the traveler, who's wounded, who is in great need of a good Samaritan. And if you're anything like me, you are probably like this as well. And so what Jesus wants us to see here, what Jesus intends in telling us this story, Jesus intends to live as beaten, bloodied, and in a ditch like the man in the story, so that we would realize that we are the ones who are needy, unable to do anything to help ourselves. We are the ones who are broken, those who are beaten by life, sin, and evil, and have been robbed of hope. And you see, the only way we can embrace the freedom that Jesus brings, a freedom that he says in Luke chapter 4, he has come to bring to those who are needy. The only way we can embrace this freedom is if you and I are freed, not only from our sin, but freed from our self-justification. As if you and I are freed from building our own identity. As if you and I are freed from thinking that we can come before God and show him our efforts. God, look at how good I've been. That's the only way we can begin to embrace the goodness that God has come to show us. A goodness that Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus has actually set his eyes towards Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to die. A goodness that he is willing to die on a cross to give to us. See, the only way we can receive such pity is when we, re when we realize that, when we realize that Jesus is actually the good Samaritan who comes to show us pity and compassion. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. If you've heard me preach, you've probably heard me quote C.S. Lewis a few times. Listen to what he says in this quote. The Christian thinks any good that he does comes from the Christ's life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we have been good, but that God will make us good because he loves us, because he has shown us his mercy, his compassion, and pity. And C.S. Lewis continues to say, just like the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. See, the only way we can begin to act neighborly to those within the church and those outside of the church is if we first realize we are the ones who first need to be shown great mercy and compassion. A bit later, we are told of the story of Martha and Mary. Here's the tendency that you and I often have. You and I try to be a Martha. We want to serve God. We want to do great things for God. We want to be servants on mission without being a Mary who's sitting at the feet of Jesus and understanding what it means to be a redeemed family and understanding what it means to be shown great, great compassion. See, here's the thing. If you try to be a Martha without being a Mary, it will crush you. It will crush you. It will take away any certainty you have in the Christian faith. 
And you see, God has not caused us to live like that. God has not caused us to build our identity on such sinking sand. Before we are servants on mission, we need to realize that we have been redeemed into God's family. We have been shown goodness so that we will show goodness towards others. Which is the second thing we ought to see from this parable. The second thing, as those who have received such goodness, we ought to show that goodness towards others. And that's the only way we can actually be neighborly towards others. It is when we realize that God has been neighborly towards us. God is the one who is the great Samaritan, or the good Samaritan, rather. And when we see that, we will see the need to imitate the good Samaritan who has shown us such great compassion. But if I'm, I'm honest with you, once again, I tend to be like the lawyer. I tend to be like the lawyer in the sense that I want to limit whom I love. See, even after having heard the great compassion that God has, has shown me, I actually want to ask, who's my neighbor? Who, who can I love? Who can I not love and still be right with God? I often find myself acting in that way. I find myself acting in that way with people that are either inside the church or outside of the church. And at times it's with those who are inside the church because we spend such a lot of time with each other. There's a brilliant quote from a guy called Chris Wright who says, To dwell with the saints above, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints below, whom we know, ah, that's a different story. And it is a different story. And often it is agony. It is hard to love others. It is hard to love others, especially when they've hurt you. I know when, they, when someone has hurt me, I tend to hold a grudge. I can be unforgiving. I can be very unforgiving. And so at that very moment, I'm essentially saying to the person, I've received such great pity from God, but I'm not going to show you any. I'm not going to be loving towards you. And here's something else I find myself often doing. I often think of other people's sin as being worse than mine. And so when someone has done something, I'll hold their sin, of, I'll hold their sin higher than I do mine. Because I think, actually, I'm more deserving of God's pity than they are. And I don't show them the very same pity that God has shown me. The third way that I'm often like this, like the lawyer, I often decide whom I limit to be a neighbor with my resources, my time, whom I invite to my home, and how I use my money. I choose who's deserving for me to act neighborly towards. But you see, this passage tells us, if you have been shown such great compassion, Reggie, you can't act like that. Reggie, have you actually built your identity on being, un being unforgiving? And if you've done so, Jesus needs to dismantle that very identity. And the way that he does that is by showing me I've been shown great, such great compassion so that I would show it to others as well. Now let me say this. I think as a church, we can tend to act in this way as well. We can be comfortable being Mary seated at the feet of Jesus 
and never become a mother. We can be comfortable being a redeemed family and enjoy meeting together, reading God's word, but never really push ourselves, as you heard in the stories a bit earlier, to be part of a life group where you are forced to serve others and love others. We never think about how we can love those whom we work with, how we can be in mission for the gospel. And so we're comfortable being a Mary and not a Martha. And you see, what the Bible tells us, what this story tells us, is when you have been a Mary, when you have been sitting at the feet of Jesus, there's no way that you won't be a Martha. It's not possible. We are a redeemed family of servants on mission. You can't pull out any of those things. This is our identity. And if anything, the world longs for a community like this. A community that will love them in this way. A community that will not just preach the gospel, but that will live out the gospel. A community that will embody compassion and justice. And so as we plan to do an event with the Care and Crisis Center and figuring out how we can love the people in Midrand, would you consider to join us? Because this is what we want to do as a church. We realize we are those who have been shown goodness to show goodness towards others. So would you join us? Would you consider to join us on that very day as we pray and talk about the Care and Crisis Center? Let me close with these words. If you're not a Christian this morning, the Christian faith is a story where identity is received, not achieved. God is not asking you to jump over some hoops in order to be saved. God is not asking you to jump over some hoops to be part of his family. All he's asking you is to come sit at his feet like Mary and embrace his goodness towards you. And then he will use you to transform your family, the lives of your friends, and the life of your community. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to see that as those who have been shown such goodness, we ought to show in that goodness towards others. And so, Lord, in the areas where we have limited our neighborliness towards others and being unforgiving and deciding on who deserves our, our goodness and our compassion, Lord, would you correct us? Would you rebuke us? Would you dismantle that idol as you do with the men here? So that it's seeing your great compassion towards others, towards us. We would be compassionate towards others. Pray that you would do this for us, not simply as individuals, but as your church so that we would effectively live out being a redeemed family of servants on mission. So that we would live out being both a Mary and a Martha. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that's the very uh, first of our talks through the parables. Next week we are looking at Luke 16, another parable there.
And then the week after, we'll look at Luke 12 uh, and Luke 15. And Rafa will bring those uh, last two talks uh, for us. Now, having mentioned Rafa, uh, I'd like to mention that would you as a church just consider to pray for him? Uh, Rafa lost his dad this past Friday. Uh, so pray for him. Uh, if you've got a relationship with him, figure out how you can act neighborly towards him in the coming week. Um, and just continue to pray for the people that are in our church as well who are enduring a hard time. Uh, please do remember as you walk out uh, to social distance, if you need any prayer, you can come to the front. And if you want to give to the work here at Christ Church Midrand, details will be outside on the pillars or you can find them on the website. Do have a good week.